0: This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? I'm ready. Me too. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. (laughs) I'm Jeff Fader, and boy, am I happy to be here with you all, because I got my friend Jonathan Porter here, Doghouse Forge. Jonathan Porter is... One of my favorite people. He and I talk a lot, and one of the reasons he's my favorite, one of my favorite people, is because I respect him as a craftsman, a business person. He's an incredible farrier. Doghouse Forges makes beautiful chef knives, and I'm happy to have you here today. How are you? I'm
1: fantastic.
0: <laughs> are you are you tired? Because I'm tired.
1: I'm beat. I'm. Just, I was looking forward to today for the. For the break that
0: it's going to be, you know, like getting to
1: talk to you and sit down for
0: a little bit of time. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted today. And a lot of it has to do with, and I shouldn't be saying this to you because as far as people working hard, I don't know if there's anybody who works harder than you. You know, (laughs) I get a little bit like ashamed. Like I was exhausted. I had to. I got. I went yesterday. I drove six hours to get some uh, wood to uh, cut down for uh, to to dry out to stabilize. And this this morning I started chainsawing all this these this these this, all these these burls, and I'm fucking tired. And I broke the chainsaw. So I got. I was at. I had one cut left to go. Four mm-hmm. inches left of wood to cut, and I broke some gear in this cheap chainsaw. And now I got to go buy another cheap chainsaw. <laughs>
1: I, uh, I have a lot of proficiency with a lot of different tools, but the chainsaw is one that never, I've never been able to, uh, to get along with it.
0: I'm with you. It seems like a lot of work cause it's like, not only do you have to have the bar oil and the chain's gotta be tight, and then you gotta this and you gotta that. And I don't do a lot of wood cutting that I need a chainsaw. So I just got one of these $40 electric chainsaws and I had one last cut to go and I broke it. So, and now I'm tired.
1: Yeah, I've never used an electric one, but the fault is mine. I haven't ever been actually shown how to properly maintain one. So like you say, you get about halfway through a day and you haven't maintained anything, and that bad boy is going to start to get stuck a lot.
0: Well, I mean, I shouldn't be complaining, especially to you. When it comes to like learning stuff or doing stuff or being proficient in things, you seem to be the best at it. Well, and I appreciate I, that, Jeff. Well, Thank it's you. true. I mean, I've spent some time with you and your family. You have a wonderful family down in Lakeland, Florida. And we uh, we did some, you do, you do clinics, you do awesome clinics. And I, I tell you what, classes and clinics are so hard to do. And when I've seen you down there, you seem like you're having such a good time. I think
1: the COVID break has actually shown me more than anything that moving forward with Doghouse Forge, the teaching part has to be part of it. I'm so in to teach. Yeah. I mean, you get the receiving end of that and I apologize, but like when you get those like 11 PM photo bombs and it's like me showing you how to like slot something with a, and you're like, you're like, yeah, thanks man. You know, that's, that's me like Jones to, 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 to show something that I figured out, you know? One oh, thing
0: that you do is one thing I have I'm very fortunate to have a I John, Jonathan and I have a very good relationship and He's always working late at night. You so Jonathan Porter has basically two businesses. I mean, it's two businesses, really. It, it, it is Doghouse Forge. It's two of them. There's no way around it. <laughs> and then you you are are a uh, you're you're traditionally you're formally trained as a farrier, and you have a fleet of of oh, I guess the fleet isn't the right word, but you got a pile of of people that you that you maintain their horses with.
1: Yeah, that's. The shoe and horses is, is the backbone of everything, and it is it is definitely my first love as far as businesses. Really? Because it's a puzzle, and I, my brain is happy when I'm solving puzzles, when I'm figuring stuff out. That's when it's quiet. It's when it's easy to just focus your
0: thoughts. But most people seem to think, and this is the craziest thing. The craziest thing is, is we, I make the joke all the time that like when I say I'm a blacksmith, people think I shoe horses. I got the chance to go to a couple farms with you and I watched how you are with the owners of the horses and with the horses. And I really feel like the blacksmithing part is almost like 5% of the job.
1: Yeah, we make a joke that our fees are so high because we do more psychiatric work than we do um, <laughs> we do actual blacksmithing because you, you get there and the owners are... Super excited to see you and tell you all the news and tell you what they've been doing. And their horses are really—they're not what most people consider pets. They're really a member of their family. So it's—you saw it. I mean, they're—they're they're doing all kinds of stuff for these things, trying to keep them together and get ready for trips. And
0: they're terrifying. Be honest with you, the horses I saw with you—they all scared me. They're <laughs> these monstrous. They're huge. I mean, they're bigger than you think. Yeah, Maybe what- it's because I'm from New York. But, I mean, at the same time, it's like I was in one one stall. You took me to the last time I was with you. When was the last time? I, no, it was two times before. The, when I first came down to doghouse in September. Okay. You brought me to this. This horse was beautiful. They're beautiful. But he. you told me he doesn't like you. He's, he's moving his ears a lot. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, he gets an erection. And now he likes you again. <laughs> and it was very, like... It was unsettling, but at the same time, it was like it went from anger to arousal so quickly. It just seemed as though it seemed as though that I was like there was problems whether whether either way there were problems.
1: Are you talking about your your visit here or Ben's Uncle Rick? Because it sounds no, a lot like you're well, talking about Uncle Rick.
0: No, I was. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. We get at some point. If you listen back to the, the Ben Snore episode, I, I made the decision that after this episode with you, my next thing is I'm going to get you and Ben to talk cowboy stories because I want to get some of your cowboy stories. Now you two are legit cowboys. And I think that that's where I think we're going to back it up a little bit in regards to the Doghouse Forge and I want to know how you grew up in Florida, right? Correct. I did. And then what got you out west to become a a rancher? It's
1: it's like I think everybody's path, it's it was uh it was unintentional opportunities i guess you know i i was uh very active in the boy scouts when i was in early high school um and in middle school obviously in the younger age but up in i was one of the older kids that that stayed around a little bit cuz our troop was super active we didn't yeah. do a lot of the boy scout stuff we did we just basically went camping all the time and our troop leaders were super adamant about us getting to experience Adventure, not just go to the like local, local state park and camp in the Boy Scout area.
0: Right.
1: So, we would go caving in Brooksville, Florida, where they have all these caves, and we would go to Key West and get to do the reef and go out on a boat, you know. And then we would go to New Mexico, and there's a camp there called Philmont. and it's a 187,000 acre ranch that Wait Phillips of Phillips 66 Oil gave to the Boy Scouts.
0: Hmm.
1: And um, I had gone there as a Boy Scout a couple of times. They were like some of the highlights of my younger life because, you know, you're in the mountains. I'm from Florida. It was my first time on an airplane, I think, in like the eighth grade or something. It was – I fell in love with the place immediately, and I dreamt about the northern New Mexico Northeastern New Mexico is a very specific region of New Mexico. New Mexico can be sagebrush flats forever. But you're in that finger of the northeastern range. You're in the the very bottom of what the same range that like Colorado Springs and Pueblo and Denver and Fort Collins. They're all on that same range that that ends up in New Mexico. So it's basically Colorado without any tourists. Huh. And it's so nice,
0: <laughs> is it like a little alpine or
1: it's uh it's everywhere from well, its it's what we call the high low country at the bottom where you're at like sixty five hundred feet, but it's flat right and then from there you get up to the highest peak um in New Mexico is Mount Wheeler. I was lucky to climb that one when I was like eighteen i think i did, did that with a buddy of mine. I have a photo of me on top in just my boxer shorts because oh
0: there you go
1: at the time that's what you did was you got into your boxer shorts and took a picture on this freezing cold mountaintop. But I don't know. Anyway, I must uh, get back, I guess, to the.
0: Right. So you, I, you're you at Boy Scouts and you get to New Mexico.
1: Yeah. So I, I love New Mexico. I get an opportunity my senior year in high school to apply for what they, uh, it's like a special program. It was called Trail Crew. Uh, trail Crew is 28 days. And what you did was you went to Philmont and you lived in the backcountry with two advisors and you're, you're like roughing it. You're like tents and no running water. You're, I mean, food is basic, like stuff you can rehydrate kind of stuff. Right. And you bust your butt for 14 days doing trail maintenance or putting in trail. And if you've ever done anything like that, you'll know how hard it is. Um, we were on the water bar diversion bar installation crew. So I had the most amazing time because all we did in the morning was cut down pine trees, like big Doug firs, I guess. Right. They're not, you know, and then we would skin them and then we'd buck them up into water bars and then we'd slide them down the mountain to wherever we were going to install them. In the afternoon, we'd dig out the trenches and install them. And it was such a blast to work hard and see your results. Yeah. And then you walk down the mountain back to your camp and you're just like, you're like that was a that was a full day, and for me, like I'd already worked really hard as a high school kid. I went to a performing arts high school I was a, a ballet student for two years, and I was in the musical theater program for two years and we had rehearsals constantly. I had a full high school schedule. I worked at the barbecue restaurant two nights a week and double shifts Saturday and Sunday, so full schedules and busyness were always a part of what I
0: am um yeah. I was about to say that those formative years seems as though your, your true satisfaction was working hard and seeing the results. I mean, that's just, I, when I, you know, even when I see you or talk to you or and, and we're, you know, spending time together, that's what I see primarily from you.
1: It's, I've been thinking a lot about all of that lately too. So it's, that's, that's so fresh, but it's definitely, I think that here's, you know, I was thinking the other day about this and this is the difference between the ranch and the previous working hard right. was that the ranch is where I, f- for the first time in my life, respected my boss and was in awe of them. Huh? Because up until then, I got like, you know, I got line cooks and a barbecue joint and yeah. I'm working at different chain restaurants as a waiter or in the back. And I, I had a very amazing chef and sous chef that taught me everything about actual cooking that I know. And they're both CIA amazingly accomplished chefs. And I respect them as well. But this was the first time that I ever looked at somebody and was like, I have got to be able to do that at some point. And that's – what that was was the ranch department was different than the rest of the Boy Scouts. So I worked there on this trail crew, and after 14 days, they give you a 14-day hike where you can basically do anything you want for 14 days in the backcountry. That that was your payment for working. So I finished the the 14 days in the backcountry. We climbed some mountains and had had a blast, and then I was like, all right, well, what's next? I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And they – Because I was, I already graduated from high school. I was one of the older, older kids. Normally they were 17. I I was 17 because I didn't. My birthday's in August, so I didn't. I graduated high school at 17, so I had turned 18 right about the time I finished the trail crew program, and they offered me a job as one of the conservationists. So I did a little stint working as a conservationist, but the whole time I was just I was just in awe of the ranch department because I'd grown up around horses. I'd grown up with lots of horse people. Florida, where I live, is very agricultural based. It's not beaches and hotels. and It's a lot of cows. Like Florida was the number two or number three producer of beef in the nation for a long time if it's not still. Uh, Hawaii, believe it or not, per capita, like cows per acre, they actually have the highest rate. Texas is obviously up there, but it's just – Um, I grew up around it. So I, and these guys were like, but in Florida guys ride dirt bikes and they drive like swamp buggies and airboats and they literally, it's cowboying in the swamp, you don't have the same tools. These guys were on horses and they had like the kind of gear you saw in like the movies and stuff and rope ropes. Yeah. (laughs) Big old hats. And they they would ride by you and they would literally spit a nasty plug of whatever out of their mouth right down next to you. And just to kind of like, what are you going to do about it? And I (laughs) and oh, man, I fell in love with what that was. And I worked so hard and I finally got a chance to be basically the piss boy. And I was hired on as a wrangler there, along with a bunch of other wranglers just for the summer. And all you do is you take out trail rides of Boy Scouts, which is
0: miserable. So you you learned how to ride a horse out there?
1: No, no, I learned how to ride a horse in Florida just oh, growing okay. up. But okay. when I switched over to the ranch department, the only job they would give me because I didn't have any ranching experience was a tour in, guide. It was basically a trail ride guide, exactly. And I'm like, whatever, I'll do it. So I did that for a year, or for th- for a summer, and then by the end of the summer. One of the one of the ranch bosses, he was like, you know, you really work super hard and I could use a hand if you want to stay on and be my hand through November. And this guy ends up being one of my best friends at the ranch. His son and I are what we call fast friends. Uh, Mason and I were just we were the buddies who did everything. We did so many pranks. Right. We got into so much trouble together. And it was it was like out of a movie, the kind of ridiculousness that we pulled off. And anyway, his dad is the guy that kind of stuck, stepped up for me. And I've learned that in a ranch environment like that, you have to kind of get stepped up for. Like, they're not just going to hire you. You got to yeah. get somebody has to speak up for you. And he he took me under his wing and he really showed me that fall how to how to cowboy like actually work cows and the whole premise behind moving them around different places. And like, I think Ben said it in the previous in New Mexico, the biggest thing you're doing is riding around, making sure everybody's going back and forth to the water.
0: Right. You know, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that made me so anxious.
1: Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's real tough. I've been on a horse before Jeff, that I was afraid was going to die. Um, my best horse too. And I ran him so damn hard we were trying to move the stallions away from the mares. We had just run them for a for a month of of breeding in the fall. And I couldn't get ahead of this one stallion. And my I was a cocky son of a bitch when I was 22 years old. I mean, yeah. I mean, you couldn't tell me nothing. And I put my horse on this son of a gun and I rode harder than I've ever ridden. And when I say that, you have to realize that there's like a mountain of sagebrush and stuff in the way. It's not like a beautiful pasture with John Wayne running across it. This thing is like trying to get away. And I rode my horse too hard and I got him overheated and then there was no water. And it was like, I'm from Florida. That's not a thing when you, you just, there's water everywhere. And the same guy rod my 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 cow boss you know he we got my horse down calmed down enough to get him to the truck and we got him we got he, he he was fine but you know rod told me he's like this is where your pride almost killed your best horse and All you had to do was just sit quiet. But you're saying it makes you anxious. I've been real anxious ever since that day, making sure that I don't push anything too hard unless you know where the water's at.
0: I would think that when I, especially talking to Ben and talking to you about, you know, these animals, when you're kind of in charge of these other animals the the you're taking you're you're there you're you're the custodian of their health and that to me it's like you know i my dog gets stung by a wasp and i'm like <laughs> afraid that we're gonna have to take her to the vet you know right. it's like i i would think that that idea of like i'm in charge of these cows like it's my responsibility to make sure they have something to drink or these horses i gotta make sure that i can you know understand these horses it's almost almost like too much responsibility for me
1: i If you listen back to the episodes you've recorded so far, I don't think a single person has said that they do not do well under pressure. It's been a very common theme.
0: Ah, maybe you're right. And... That's you got a good you got a good plan. I don't know if Sean Ariani does well under pressure. Be honest, with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna sunset. I'm not under pressure. Maybe sure. not. You might. I think he might wilt, a, wilt away. I'm just kidding, John. I don't know. Kidding.
1: I Relax. think John cranks out some some pressure moments with the things he does. They're technical enough. There's gonna be pressure,
0: but but the it, difference between the pressure of meeting a deadline and let's not kill an animal for for the sake of your own you know right. ego is that's two different things. The health and welfare of these animals, like, that's just, it's, just, it's just that one of the things that especially with Ben, Ben Snoor, and Jared Thatcher and you, is you both, you're all of you guys are very smart and you take calculated risks and you gamble to a certain degree, but the gambling, it doesn't seem like it's like, well, let's hope for the best. It's like, I feel like you all have taken smart, calculated risks to see success.
1: I definitely know that there's calculated risk. I am a, what I call analysis paralysis person. So <laughs> there's no shortage of me like thinking it through. <laughs> yeah. But there's, I try to go with my gut and I developed a big gut instinct on the ranch because something, again, if you, if you haven't ever been there and Ben will, will he'll smile when I say this, Jeff there's times that I've rode up on a fence that had a gate in the middle of it and on the other side of the fence I didn't know if the cows were left or right but the problem is left goes for 25,000 acres and right goes for 35,000 acres which way do you go man
0: so 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 you're 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 so you're on the ranch now and you're you're wrangling uh, horses and stuff like that What's are where are you living on this ranch? Now, is this the ranch you are at for quite a while or the only ranch you've been on or
1: Yeah, I only worked for the Philmont ranch. And I should go back a little bit. The guy Wade Phillips that donated the land to the Boy Scouts, his prerequisite and his rule for that the boy for the Boy Scouts of America to maintain ownership, and they can never sell it either, by the way. It's like a some sort of setup that he made it where they can't use it for profit other than to operate the high adventure base. And the big thing is they can't ever sell it because it has to be maintained as a working cattle ranch. So behind all the Boy Scouts, there's a a 365-day-a-year working cattle, horse, burrow, and all other aspects of a ranch. We grow our own alfalfa. alfalfa. It's all sprinkler-irrigated. They put up their own hay. It's... It's a huge operation just to keep the ranch going. And then the Boy Scout side requires 360 something head of horses to fill oh, all the it. Boy Scout locations with their trail riding. You got like 75 head at each place. It's like,
0: what? Well, it's a huge operation. It's a
1: huge operation. So, I mean, those few during the summer is basically all hands on horses and you're just moving horses everywhere. But go ahead. No, I was just, oh, it was making me think about a funny story. Go ahead. I'm ready for. I don't want to tell all my funny stories. Ben will be upset. So one time, I was up in the uh, the north camp, up way up in the mountains, and I'd been up there for quite a while, and I was kind of by myself a lot. I was starting to get a little stir crazy. It was the longest I think I've spent at that point in my life, like in the woods without power, running water, anything. Just wood burning stove, little bitty cabin, me, my horse, my dog, and taking care of these cows and taking care of these horses that are in this valley. That was my responsibility. And the Valley went for like about 15 miles. It was a really easy gig because when you're in a steep Valley like that, everything stays at the bottom. Cause that's where the water is. Right. So all you got to do really is ride up and down the Valley. You have cross fences. They don't even go up the mountain. They just go up high enough that it's annoying and the cows go back down. Um, Because everything stays in the bottom. So it's a real good beginner course for how to cowboy. And you're pushing stock from gate to gate. So one day you might only push like a mile through a gate and then ride a mile home. But you might also be at the end of that valley. And so you may end up riding 12 miles and then 12 miles. So you could very easily spend different amounts of time. On the short days, I would get bored. And I started catching chipmunks. Chipmunks. Which we call, we we had these feed sacks for these horses. These, like, uh, like you know, th- like feed came in them. You know what I mean? Like, right. f- they're like 50 pound feed sacks. And I would uh, tie a string to them and I'd sit over in the, just out of sight, and I'd put a little bit of feed in it and I'd wait for the chipmunk to get in there. And then I'd yank it and it would throw them at the bottom of the bag. And then I'd put a big heavy glove on and I'd reach in and get them. The thing that I guess wasn't, Sitting well with my boss was that I had this, um, type of antiseptic. It's called blue coat and it's basically like indigo and it turns anything it touches like this indigo, blue, purple, whatever it touches combo. So I would take the white, I was painting the white. What was
0: it for? What was this stuff for?
1: It's for like doctoring horses or cows if they get, if like scratches or abrasions, it's basically like an astringent. Um, it's purple so you can find the spot again easy. Um, but I was painting the white stripes on the chipmunks purple. And then I would let them go. And that way, when I would ride around, I'd be like, I already got you, son of a gun. I got
0: you. And then I'd be... here marking them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was setting them up. So I, was, I would set up the traps wherever I was working. And I was slowly turning all these chipmunks into these purple striped chipmunks. And my boss was driving up one day. And all these purple striped chipmunks kept running in front of his truck. And I had ordered more blue coat in that shipment. And no, you don't ever order blue coat. Like blue coat's not something you'll ever use because no one really ever uses it. <laughs> so he he, sees, he took me down. He uh, he told me I had to work at base camp for a couple of weeks. So I did, I needed a little
0: so he, bit of- So you'd been, been alone too long.
1: I, don't, I he, wasn't like a, I saw people, but I had just been in the woods too long. It was time for me to be not playing in the woods anymore.
0: I want, it, could, it would have been funny. If, you, if he was driving up, he's like, I don't want all this blue coat. I'd imagine maybe something's wrong, happening. To, a lot of injuries lot happening of injuries. to all these horses. And next thing you know, you see all these purple, these indigo chipmunks running around. <laughs> and he's just like, Porter, got to go. You got to come back down. You got to come back he's down. He's been out too long. Yeah. They called so, me Little
1: John there, actually. They didn't call me Porter. They called me Little John.
0: All right. So when they, when you came back down from your strange, your chipmunk ranch, your purple chipmunk <laughs> ranch, what were you doing? what were you doing when you got
1: back down? You'd be driving hay different places, which, which means loading and unloading hay. If you're at the base camp, you're bringing stuff that's injured. You're doing a lot of doctoring. You've got, got constant things down there to be taken care of. It's, it's more animal husbandry at base camp it's a very different schedule. You have like, you know, everything is done at certain times. There's dinner, there's lunch, there's this, you know, you, that's where you're on your own. You kind of just do what you want. When you're down right. there, you get like locked back into a system.
0: I so need ordering that. All you know? sorts of, so you, when you're up in the, you're up in the woods, you're ordering the food that you need, the supplies that you need, they're bringing it up and then yeah, you, you come have a back cooler, down. You're...
1: You have a cooler dug into the ground and they, they usually just fill it up. Or if you have a cabin that has a false floor on it, underneath the floor will stay pretty cold, so they'll put the cooler down there. Some of the camps have, have power. Like most of the big camps, they have power at this point, or they have generators or something. But um, if you get into those smaller cow camps or you
0: get into the higher country camps, you can get a little more backcountry. So you, is this when you started to shoe—because obviously you're, 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 you're doing animal husbandry. Are, is this when you start to shoe horses? Absolutely. Is uh,
1: I hated shoeing horses, too, which is what's crazy. It was something you had to do on Saturday morning, basically. If I had three horses and they all had to be done every four to five weeks, then I was doing one almost every weekend. But I'm me, so I would just do them all on the same weekend and be so mad by the end of it that I didn't (laughs) want to shoe horses anymore.
0: Well, so how long would it take... Back then, how long would it take to, and obviously, we're going to get into the, the, I was fascinated by what you were doing as a farrier, but back then, you didn't really have the, you know, expertise that you do now. When you're shoeing a horse, what are you, at, at, you're at that level, what are you diagnosing the horse at needing? Oh, you you're just not, like there's, sticking, there's you're just no, sticking yeah, there's on? no diagnosis of anything, there's, you're just sh- sticking whose shoes on.
1: Yeah, it's flat, it, and you shape the shoe to an extent to the, to the foot and then kind of the other way around. It's it's it, there's nothing wrong with the kind of horseshoeing I was doing and I was doing a good job, but it's just a very different understanding. However, the maybe not. The ranch horses that I worked on could have all benefited from better farrier work. Right. They were fine without it though. At least as we knew. There's a lot of horses that would come up lame that I now know had basic
0: issues that i could have fixed now if i was back then but, so what would be some of the basic issues that would make them limp? oh
1: we call them the vicular issues that's where there's this little bone that floats underneath the horse's foot and it's one of the big big tendons it acts as like a bushing basically for the tendon to go over the top of it to connect the bottom of the foot to the upper limb and that thing is really poorly built and when horses are ridden it makes them come down on that on that bone a little much and it decalcifies a lot they get they get holes in them they get fractures in them they get the little teeny tiny ligaments that hold it together to the rest of it they give out like it's just a mess of problems so i know a lot of those horses that were just barely off or would be off after you know a long day i probably could have changed the alignment of their shoeing added a little bit of this taken away a little bit of that and we probably would have ended up with a horse that could have lasted a lot longer
0: See, this is what's fascinating to me because I I think there's this misconception that all shoes are the same, all horses are the same. You just shove the fucking shoe on, and then you're ready to go. But it's very clear that this isn't like going to Foot Locker and getting a pair of Nikes. This is diagnosing real issues based on medicine and animal mechanics.
1: At at a level, yes. On my... Horses that I'm working on on a daily basis here in Florida, it is a far more important thing to implicate into your practice than it would be if you were doing you know, your string of horses that you only trail ride or you work cows on one time a month. Those horses, what happens is basically your errors are compounded. So if you've got a horse you only use every now and then, he's not going to really care that his foot's not the best while you're using him because he's, he's going to have plenty of time in between uses to kind of get right. Um, if they're shod real bad then, and they can't get away from it and it's not something that's just load issue, then that's when you get into where like you're causing problems, but if you're sticking to the fundamentals and you're just keeping things flat and you're making sure you're not leaving your toe too long and you're cowboy shoeing, which is just put the shoe on the perimeter of the foot, you really can't get in too much trouble hmm. you, people get into trouble when they start trying to fix stuff, and you know, you know enough to be dangerous, that old line, it's 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 way worse for me if you try and fix something that you don't know the rest of than it is if you than if you just leave it alone.
0: Now, is the concept behind I mean, I think about this. I mean, you think about other animals. And you're not like all of a sudden, uh, you know, creating something for their benefit. The I would imagine this is in, you know, this is you're the professional. Was the reason why horseshoes became a thing is because all of a sudden these animals became beasts of burden and they started to notice that they needed to keep these animals going longer by preparing their feet. You don't see horses without shoes on, right? I, mean, I have I have at least
1: 50 horses that are trims, that are not shod, but they don't do anything. They literally are just a backyard pasture horse or they're um, maybe somebody's, like I said, weekend trail riding horse. There's lots of positions where – The horse doesn't need the extra protection or support because it's totally built to be barefoot on its own. Um, The problem normally comes whenever you're riding them because they're just not meant to carry us around. So you're absolutely right that the idea that they became used for agriculture and pulling plows and eventually being ridden and then doing mostly load carrying, I – I have done some, some research, but there's not a whole lot out there to be done about where it originated. And that's when that happens, it kind of tends to tell me that it originated before we were writing stuff down, but
0: But you, and you know, when you, when you know the first guy who saw a horse, they thought, I bet that looks like I could ride on it position. (laughs) I mean, it's like, it's the perfect, I mean, it's like, you don't say, you don't look at like a bear. And say, I bet I could ride that. But a horse, it looks like there's a place for a person to go on. It is like
1: what would happen if a moose just didn't have those giant horns on it. You know? It'd be, it's it's a lot more forgiving. That's for sure. I never thought of that.
0: <laughs> I mean, it look like, I mean, it literally looks like, I think I could fit on that. Well, I that, know That that looks like it could be like, it looks like a seat almost. <laughs> right? Yep. I mean, it's not a giraffe. A giraffe doesn't look like you could ride
1: it. How much mead does it take before we get? we get uh, this guy to try and ride it that's it that's
0: i'm telling first. you i mean who have you ever seen and no one is riding a giraffe oh, because where well. do you sit well that explains horse- why
1: camels are ridden they obviously need to be ridden
0: look at that you know jeff this is a very solid theory you have well why don't they do they, you think they shoe do they do they shod camels i don't believe so but
1: i don't know so either but the first horseshoes were leather. They were like leather socks, basically, that they tied over them. And that was, that was the way that they rode, rode and kept them. And even right now, in like the, a lot of the Mongolian guys, they still use leather. Um, huh. Like More like a sock or like a boot that could be removed and saved for when they were not in use. And I, the first steel horseshoe that I know of is in the Roman period. Right. I know that Arab warriors, when they would shoe horses back in the Crusades, they were the most vicious cavalry you've ever seen because you've, I think everyone can imagine a horseshoe on a horse's foot. Like it's the, si- it's the shape of the foot standing on the ground, right? right? Well, what the Arabs did was on the outside branch of the horseshoe, so what's on the outside of the foot, okay. they would kind of like hook a turn and make a little mini sickle.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. It's enough already. What where, else do you need where on these are horses? Where
1: are the people you're fighting in the Crusades not armed?
0: Their legs. Yeah, huh <laughs> So they would just run through them <laughs> with these little sickle horses. And so it's like one of those trucks when you see the spikes coming out of the hub. I think
1: about that every time I see one of those silly trucks. Yep. Every time that just seems so. Unnecessary. Mad Max way before Mad Max. So Absolutely. they have
0: like blades on their on their horse on their hooves. I
1: think saying it's like a blade is fine, but don't think of it as like a long like sword or something. I think they're very short. Like they were just meant to basically shred stuff
0: kind of like what they do with the roosters when they do cockfighting.
1: I have never actually seen that or even seen those little they boots. They put
0: these goddamn it's like these like uh it's like these little blades they put them on their spurs Ow. and then they cut the shit out of each other. That sounds horrible. People are crazy. I, I don't understand. I I would think that I would think that <laughs> the guy who was just like, you know what would be really good on this horse. Some blades on the hooves. What? <laughs> it's not big enough. It's a monster. <laughs> when I saw the horses with you, all I could think of is this fucking thing is huge. If he just leaned against me, you know, against the wall, I think he would be crushed. And then you send me this picture. You were shooing a fucking Clydesdale. That was last week. Yeah, it was nuts. The thing was. Why massive. did they get so big? How what's going on? It was so <laughs> big. I couldn't believe it. You sent me a picture of it and he was like, this is what they use for Budweiser. And I was like, why do they need them? No, so why that, was are they so actual, big? that was an actual
1: that was an actual Budweiser Clydesdale.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: She was an actual Budweiser Clydesdale. She was um one of their breeders and this is just way crazy info, but she has a reproductive issue now and she cannot be bred anymore. So she was she was sold and these folks bought her. Um it'll be interesting to see how it turns out, you know? It's uh these folks I don't think they understand the difference between a draft horse and a a um a light what's, horse.
0: What's a giraffe horse? No, 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 a draft. Duh. Oh, I thought I was like I thought you said a giraffe horse. I, was well, like, I don't Alright, now, I now don't, we're getting into something different. I'm not I am not
1: educated enough on the origins of, of giraffes to tell you how they came about, but basically one thing I do know is that the bigger they get, typically the more docile they get. And that's from breeding, because if it's that big and mad,
0: you'd have a real big problem. You're talking about giraffes. No, giraffes. Oh, I, I, all of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit, the, those big giraffes are super docile. No. I had no idea. <laughs> no, no, no. I no. just saw these. Just I was going to bring up the zoo. these videos. Have you ever seen the videos of the giraffes hitting each other in the head with yes, uh, I have. With their own necks? That's, they swing their necks like we are not clubs. talking
1: about giraffes, Jeff. We're all right, talking let's go back about to draft horses. Draft. Let's go back to draft. D-R-A-F-T. F-T. So, F-t. so
0: <laughs> all right. So let's just head back. Let's just head back for a second. All so right. you're, you're finishing off at the ranch. What brings you back to Florida?
1: Um, I didn't go to Florida. I left the ranch at twenty. Two, twenty-three, twenty-three. 23, 23, I don't know, one of those two. And I had decided that final stint at the ranch that I was over watching the previous ranch director be the ranch director because he wasn't very good at it. And I could obviously do a better job at 23 years old than the 60-year-old guy who'd been cowboying his whole life. So I decided I was going to go to college and get a degree in ranch management and equine science or ag business or a collection of things so that I could go back out, get back to work, and then when the position became available, I would have the appropriate education that was
0: required to fill the position. Now, if you don't mind me saying, yeah. that doesn't seem that like that idea came from the same person that was dying chipmunks purple. That seemed like a very well-thought-out idea.
1: Yeah, I just... I was in kind of a perpetual cycle there where it's like I had this seasonal issue because they closed the ranch at the end of November, and because there's nothing happening. Cows are right. pregnant, they don't give birth until February or march, hopefully if they're if they're born before then it happens, but it's not optimal, especially when it's cold there. So basically, in March, you're coming back, but you've got this like three four month window where I'm at home and I'm like working, waiting tables, or I'm just doing something, mostly partying, to be totally honest. I would just, I yeah. wouldn't spend any money at the ranch. So I would just get, get. but it's just, it was a wasted cycle and I needed to full-time employment. And there just wasn't, even on the bigger ranches around me, everybody had to day work and Ben still does. I he'll tell you, he still goes and helps guys from time to time, you know, and it's just, The work is just all over the place. It's not like, I mean, he has the sweet spot now where he takes care of uh, one place. And I wanted to get that. But to get that, you really have to know what you're doing on a way bigger scale. I mean, I didn't understand that you have to fertilize pastures back then. Like, what kind of fool would I have been to just let my ranch die because I don't know any better? You know, and then you go to guess what the whole point of college is. I don't think college is for everybody, but I think if you know what you want to do, then college is fantastic.
0: If you can direct that learning skill to exactly what you want to do. Exactly. That's the tool, not that's the problem with colleges. Now you end up going to a place where maybe you think I need a broad education and you'll find something while you're there Ex- as opposed to what you did, where you're like, I know what I want to do. This is the place I got to go. This is the shit I got to learn. And now I'm ready to come back.
1: I it seems a little bit more focused. I barely graduated high school. Right. Like, and I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not a dumb person, <laughs> but I just don't learn in that environment. I don't learn traditionally. I have very aggressive ADD. I have a lot of other stuff that compounds my ADD. It makes uh, a schoolroom learning very difficult. However, when I was focused and actually wanted to learn the information, I was on the dean's list at that school every semester.
0: And it was, it doesn't surprise me, you know,
1: but it's because I was like engaged in the, so that's what you, I was just trying to re- reiterate what you said. If you know what you're there for, it's, it can, it can be the, it can be the difference. And I use it to this day, but while I was there, one of my teachers was a, was a veterinarian and he was a large animal vet, just pretty much did just horses. Up until now, veterinarians only worked on cows in my mind. Because if you had a horse that was injured on the ranch, it got turned out for six months. If it came back and it was still lame, it went to the killer lot, which is where it's just sold like the cows are for price per pound. Right. If it was hurt real bad, it got what we called a shot of 270, which 270 is a long rifle. Um... But you couldn't yeah. say you were going to shoot a horse over the two way radio that everybody on the ranch heard, so they would say stuff like i'm going to have to give this horse a shot at two seventy if somebody could come pick me up or whatever right. <laughs> that way all the ranchers knew that you were about to shoot a horse or a cow or something without everybody knowing you were about to have to do that but that's literally how how crass it was it was that's that's what horses and I got to the veterinarian's office, and it's like these horses are like taken care of. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And this is where I actually learned that there's more than one discipline of horses. That's how ridiculous my horse education had been to this point. I thought all horses were ranch horses or Florida ranch cracker horses. I knew there were thoroughbreds that were race horses, but I didn't know anything else but that. Um, I knew there were draft horses just because of Budweiser, but I learned while I was there at this vet clinic that there's all these different breeds and all these different disciplines, but the biggest thing I learned was that on the first day, we had a horse walk in lame, and the farrier I was helping did some stuff along with Dr. Monford. They took x-rays. They came up with a game plan. They built a, a prescription for the horse, and the horse walked out totally fine. Huh. And I was so bit. I was, I mean, we call it ate up. I was just ate up with horseshoeing. I couldn't help it. I wanted to know everything about fixing horses. And I got so good at fixing problems. And in college, I was exceptionally good at solving problems with lame horses. And I, I used that all through school to pay for my living, everything. I shot horses. My friends would get so mad because they'd have to bartend until two or three in the morning for a hundred dollars worth of tips. And I'd go and do one horse and come home with more than that. And. I fell in love with taking care of the horses. Like actually it sounds cheesy, but I was, I was acting out on real change. I was actually seeing validation that my thoughts of this puzzle were working. And that was like an addiction for me. Like, that's such a high for me. Like when I solve the riddle, Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Cause it's like, I didn't do good in math. I did. I did horrible in math in school, but I can do crazy stuff in my head. You know, and it's like, it's this, it's, it's the structural thing. And, and being my own boss, shooing horses, it all helps. And
0: see, I would think that, you know, because we, we talk about this a lot as a as makers. You do get satisfaction when you have an idea, you use techniques to execute it, and you execute it. There's satisfaction in the sense of, like, I have control over my own, I have discipline. I, I'm convinced that that's where it comes from. It comes from I'm satisfied that I'm not garbage and I have a degree of discipline to make this ha- happen. But once you put in the idea of I'm going to fix this animal, And then you see it walk out, I would think it'd be more. Now with that said, I know that uh, through with family and everything else, and you know as well too, that a lot of doctors or nurses have what's referred to as a hero complex where they are obsessed with fixing people. And it's like, it's more than just like, I'm just doing my job. It's like, the adrenaline dump a lot of surgeons have it it's the idea of i'm using my brains and intellect i'm the only one who can fix this problem in this person i would imagine that there's a little bit of that too with what you're doing because i know when i've seen you interact with your the ranch the people at the ranches they talk pretty to you. They talk real nice to you because they know, they know that you know the horse. They know you know the problems it had in the past. They know that you know the problems that the people have had. So it's almost like this. It's your when they deal with you, they know that you are going to fix the problem. And that must be very intoxicating.
1: I I guess I probably I mean I have to think about that on a subconscious level, but I know why our job is so important. It's just the most simple phrase that is part of my daily day thinking is that no foot, no horse.
0: That's it. No foot, no horse. Sorry, man. That's right. <laughs> we that are the, good point. We
1: are the first in line, buddy.
0: <laughs> that is that is totally true. So when I first when I first met a farrier, it was back in the day and I got an opportunity to to work for a farrier for a day. I, I just did I just chose not to. And the whole idea was the guy said, I need someone who can help me just schlep my stuff around. We're gonna go see, you know, sixteen horses or something like that, and I'll pay a five hundred dollars for the day. And I was like, What? Just to carry your bags and help you out? He's like, Yes. And I I couldn't do it but I was always surprised. I was just like, what am I doing with this MIG welder? I am <laughs> fooling around here fabricating. What am I doing wrong? There is a lot of money to be had in shoeing horses, but what I got the takeaway was it's physically exhausting. It's
1: a beast. It's a beast. Um, I only shoe two to three days a week anymore, and that's by intention. Doghouse Forge is what we call my upright gig. Um, yeah. I can't be bent over my whole life, so I need something in place so that when the day comes that I get hurt, God forbid, or I break down all the way, which is going to happen, I got something else that's there. And, I mean, the farrier community takes care of farriers. like I. The only other, and, I, and I'm very sheltered in this, so if there's other unions or groups that... Don't worry about them. Linemen. About you. Linemen are the okay, only line. other... Yeah group that I see that have as tight a bond as farriers do farriers put it this way I've had injuries before and before I can call my clients I've got other farriers asking for addresses so they can go and do my work and I do the same you know like my buddy my my, my buddy Kevin wrecked his dirt bike and for like 8 to 10 12 weeks everybody including his dad pitched in and did his horses for him and like, we don't, you know. And the whole point of that is, you don't just take their, you you do the horses that they they get the money. Like, that's it.
0: Wait, well, you do their horses, and they keep the money. They don't pay. You? Absolutely. And
1: I've had uh-huh. it. I've had it done for me for for fifteen years, and I've done it for several people. My mentor is one of the harshest son of a guns you've ever met. But you get hurt, and he will be there to do your work, and he will make sure that those checks are in your mailbox. And I witnessed that. As an apprentice, and I will never shirk that task because that's
0: amazing.
1: That's the, I would never have thought that. Ask other farriers. I'm, they're all going to tell you the same.
0: So your friend, let's just say for argument's sake, your friend hurts himself. He's out for eight weeks. Everyone's shoeing his horses for him. He's getting all the checks, and then they just know they can count on him when, they're, when they need him. Damn right. Jesus I see I would ex, I would have expected that you guys would all I mean this is just me I would just expect that you'd be like oh he fucked that horse up and now I got his ranch I would think that it'd be a little bit more uh competitive there's
1: a there's different types of farriers so and I it's,
0: shitheads and good people
1: yeah but it's not really just that it's not just personality it comes down and there's different types of horses man it's I'm very expensive. I'm not the most expensive, but I'm very expensive. But my horses cost more than most people's houses. And a lot of the horses cost more than people's cars. You know, like, it's a. every time I pick up a foot, I have a serious responsibility to do the best job I possibly can. Because, number one, this represents somebody's investment. If it's a small investment for them, it's not, it's not, it's not important to me. It's a big investment for me. So I respect it, and if I got, I have a client that has. I think he's like the number three or number five dressage horse in the country right now, and I just did him the other dressage. Dressage is is like is a very refined form of training in the English riding discipline, and it's the kind where you see them almost dance on the horses, where they they almost sit still, they 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 do pirouette. I mean, it's an I okay, okay. The thing yeah, so with visage, yeah. though, is that they're judged on movement precision. So, like, if the right foot moves X amount, the left foot has to match it. So when I shoe that horse, I'm communicating with this trainer. She says, I need more on this side. I need more hind end. I need more of this to give me this. So it's my job to take that information and flip it into mechanical changes on my actual shoeing, the actual horseshoes excuse me, that will affect the changes that she needs to see in the movement of the animal. So she might say, I need more hind in." Well, if I've got the horse shod with a more blunt toe behind, I can just change it to a slightly more pointier shoe. And I'll trim my foot to have a little more of the natural conical shape to the back. And you'll end up with more what we call purchase because the the narrower the pitch of the hind shoe, the deeper it's going to dig into the ground. So now he's got more power. So now he's got more go, which more go is more distance. It all just keeps accumulating on itself. And then at the same time, I can't change the timing of the back feet without also adjusting the timing on my front end. If my front end is in the way because I sped the back up or I slowed the back down, it's going to, it gets very complicated but, I, I, but it all makes sense. It, makes it all sense, makes right? sense, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense in terms of, I mean, when I say it makes sense, it makes sense that, you know, there's always the actions and these these things make differences in the way the, the horse walks. I, I, I'm not going to pretend like, oh, yeah, I understand. the, right. the I, know do. I don't yeah. understand any of that shit. But <laughs> I understand that they're asking you for some type of performance and the way you put the shoe on and the way you put the kind of shoes on and then the way it's clipped and all that. That gives you what they want. It, it seems like it's just, like I said, this isn't any type of blacksmithing.
1: It's nuts. And I don't understand why
0: uh, why people think that. It's, it's all. We, it's
1: we shape the horseshoe with the forge. Like people,
0: people ask I mean, me. You know, you're not doing it. You're not making it from scratch.
1: I mean, I, I can, I don't you have, I, I
0: have, I, I have your, one of the, Oh the yeah, you for, do have a good bar. You shoe gave me a forge welded shoe. That is incredible. That one is fun for me because I did that deep seat
1: with the hammer. So that inside web where it's all recessed that normally we grind that, but I forged
0: that in that way. I'll post a picture of that too. I posted when I no, dealt with, are, uh, when those the, are, that that's is, a good
1: shoe. It's also fully, fully fullered, which is hard to do, but, um, well, I don't make handmade shoes because it's not cost effective and it's not right. time, time effective. And I also don't do as good a job as the companies that make the professional quality shoes that we use. Um, I'm sure. But they're a blank. So they come like a big oval and you have to put all of the features of the foot in them. So forging, I will stand up for the fact that the type of forging that I do is extremely precise and extremely intent. It's, it's extremely intended. And one of my things my mentor taught me that is so important about shoeing horses is to show intent. If you fit this horseshoe and you want it to fit the shoe, when you forge it, it needs to fit. Don't hang a bunch of crap out, grind it off, and act like you did what you wanted to do. You need to start with your plan and end with your plan so that when somebody picks up that foot and they look down, there is no question that whoever did this foot did this exactly on purpose.
0: So. This brings me to when you got into knife making. I would imagine the concept behind what you just told me—intention—and and there's direct results to your actions. When you're shoeing a horse, it works or it doesn't work. You have immediate—you have immediate. Uh, with a knife, if you're depending on what you're doing, you might not see, you know, the results until whatever, person cooks it for a long time or does it, uses it for a long time, but with a the horseshoe, there's immediate results and you can see your work immediately. So how does that, how did you integrate that into, because I'm convinced that there's a connection between the, the farrier, your farrier business and your knife making business. So how did you start making knives?
1: Well, one of my gigs as a farrier was, to, I was the official, at a horse show that was at the Florida state fairgrounds and it was a repeating horse show. They had six of them a year, maybe seven. Uh, it right. doesn't, it, anyway, it's a three day horse show. And what they do is they have an official that comes and I'm set up in the middle of the fairgrounds and the Tampa state fairgrounds has a huge equestrian park. Um, it's the Florida fairgrounds, equestrian park. It's massive. Um, anyway, so they have these huge shows. They'll have, uh, some of these would have 500 horses, some of them have 300 horses, some of the big ones might have 1000. So you have a lot of a lot of stuff going on. But they don't want people driving in and out of the show all weekend. So if your fluffy loses a shoe, they don't want fluffy's farrier driving in and fixing it. Because what happens is you end up with just traffic all the time. So right. they have an official that when the shoe falls, that's the only person that's allowed to fix it. It's a very like thing of standing when you're first starting to shoe horses, if you get a horse show, because you're like the guy, you know, and like right. it's a it's right. a big ego boost. What it really is, is a very undervalued retainer that you're given for the weekend and three days of intense boredom waiting for something to happen. Um, so I would start doing projects in the little farrier barn and I did all kinds of stuff. I built most of what my first shop was out of like odds and ends, scrap metal. I had pieced together. I would, I had like a whole fabrication shop set up in there at one point, Um, but I would just kind of entertain myself. And I decided that somehow I don't, I can't tell you how, but I found a YouTube video of some guy in England forging, oh, oh really, forging a farrier's rasp. And I was like, Oh, I can do that. That looks fun. So I watched the video of him forging the rasp. It's like 15 minutes long. And This is in 2011, 2012, maybe. I don't know. Um, Turn the video off, and I proceed to forge out these two knives. And they're just like the video. You know, follow the steps. You'll get the same result. And I'm like, all right, this is pretty cool. And then you turn it back on, and there's part two. It's grinding. And I'm like, grinding? What the fuck? (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean grinding what do you oh shit i don't have grinding what am i gonna do i had like a ball door which is what we call our big 10 inch expander wheel with the gnarly 36 grip belt on it it's basically what you change the the heel lengths of horseshoes with or you do like aggressive metal removal on horseshoes um when you're trying to clean up finishes or do like a rolled toe or something you just you you got to have a lot of torque but anyway that's not a finishing machine is what i should have just led with but I was on Craigslist within like 10 minutes. I found this like one by 42 craftsman like an hour away. I drove over and I bought it. And then I had the only belts that they sold for it were at Lowe's, and there was an 80 grit and a 120 grit. So I did all of the work on a one-inch slack belt, didn't have a platen. I had no idea that what platins were for yet um obviously (laughs) and i made two of these like football knives they're like full convex on both sides and you know what i'm talking about right when you end up convex in the spine just as much as the yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. so you have a football yeah yeah it's an
1: oval it's an oval oval. and i I made these two and then i got to handling and i didn't have any handles so i cut the handle off one of my nice farrier hammers and i like made inserted tangs with it and Burnt it and I had these nasty, gnarly insertions that were just gaping all over the place. It's so bad. So I did this like cord wrap on it and I just, it got out of hand immediately. The first two of them, it got out of hand. I should have been the warning right there. And I was co- sort of predisposed to the knife thing because my mentor makes what in my opinion is the best horseshoeing knife in the country. Um, he's well known for it and they are, they're incredible horseshoeing knives. I sat in the passenger seat the entire time he built that business. I've told him this because he said, like, you're so far above my pay grade. And I'm sorry, but to hear your mentor tell you that you're above his pay grade is one of the craziest feelings that you will ever have in your entire life. And we should be trying to talk about knives some. and, And it's, I'm just like, I mean, I try to tell him, dude, all I've done is implement the one side of the conversation I could hear on my side of the truck for almost three years and then watching you build and watching them fail and listening, talking you through fixing problems. Like I had already figured out how to heat treat before I made any knives because I was working Robbie through air hardening. Yeah. And man, it's just, that's the real reason that it kind of came easy is because I had almost unwillingly sat through an entire three-year learning process of it. Yeah,
0: lectures. You went through lectures. Yeah. You went through lectures without any practical labs. And then all of a sudden, after three years of lecturing, you got it.
1: Yeah. And then it was just a matter of figuring out what actually worked, which took a couple of years. I'm very sorry if you own one of the first, like, 30 or 40 knives that I made because they're way too thick. Right. Um, The cool thing is most of those people – are such return clients that they have way newer editions of everything, right. and they treasure those pieces of shit like nobody's business, and it's ridiculous. I actually did a complete. I sent you a picture of it. I didn't send anybody else a picture of it because I was embarrassed. But I rehandled knives number four, five, six, and seven. Remember that photo I sent you? Yes. And those people, I asked them if they wanted me to just give them new knives, and they said, "Hell no, these right. are my husband's favorite things." And I, my wife has to tell me repeatedly that like people really like these things. Cause I am so prone to find fault in everything that I do. It's, it's just part of me and it's hard to recognize that people value stuff. And the first ones were rough, but the customers are great. They come back, you refine, you refine, you refine, you know how it is. You you figure out somebody that knows more, more than you finally steps in and says, Hey man, why don't you take a, another 16th off each side of this three 16th kitchen knife.
0: You keep making over and over again, you know, and you're like, well, who was the, who was the guy who did that for you? Oh man. Um, who was the guy who said, Hey, I remember, I mean, I'm, I'm, walking into, I, I'm walking into something, but I remember you mentioning to me that you got a call from Nick Wheeler. I did. It wasn't a call. It was a DM. It was a DM. Nick actually helped me with heat treat.
1: um, the grinding stuff was uh, – Alex and I went to Blade one year.
0: Alex, it, Alex, my, Alex is – Alex is my
1: former business partner. He's the RP Knives side of Doghouse Forge. We're still okay. excellent friends. He's an amazing knife maker. You should check RP Knives out. His his stuff will blow your mind. He's an amazing outdoor good knife dude. maker. He's a good great dude. guy. Real good dude. Um, yeah, we, our business models – my culinary side took off with the semi-production and the custom, and the outdoor didn't merit that. So we just had – that's the only reason that we're not together. People always want to make a big deal about it. But, like, he, we, we laugh all the time. Everyone's always like, wait a minute, you guys are still friends? I'm like, yeah, we borrow crap constantly from each other.
0: You took me to a sh- – from the airport, you took me to a shop. Oh,
1: right on. I didn't even know that. But – Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, we went to Blade the first time and i walked around blade like an investigative journalist that was my whole point of being at blade was to finally get my hands on knives and i was a little dis- disappointed to be honest with you at blade uh i saw a lot of knives that were not up to what my standard was for selling a knife which dis, dis- gave me it kind of it, it disheartened me because i was in my opinion very not good at making knives
0: hmm.
1: i understood Enough at that point to where I would finish everything to the greatest of my ability, and that's the important part. Is just to make sure that everything you can do has been done. Right. You will learn how to do all the rest. And something that Alex should be attributed to, because it is a hundred percent why we succeeded in Doghouse Forge in the beginning so fast, was we just made good knives. Everything else will work. He would just say, "Fuck it, just make good knives. Everything else will work." And you know what? That's what we did. We put the focus on that. But at Blade, I was so disappointed that it kind of it, it disheartened me, and then it inspired me, too. And one person, and you're going to love this, I walked up to good old Moreco's table. I picked up his knives. I did the old, and I'm sorry for everyone that I've ever done this to, the douchebag eyesight right in front of the guy. And because <laughs> I was so tired that of seeing war.
0: That is a douchebag. Uh, I, 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 that's why I don't pick anybody's shit up. I <sighs> Okay. Okay. You, you cited down it. You, you looked to make sure it wasn't a banana
1: straight as an arrow spine was rolled. The heel was rolled. The handle fit. The blade was straight. The finish was nice. It was all the things that I was looking for to be given validation that my work was in fact, improving. And I said it to him. I was like, you're the only one here that I'm impressed with. And huh. we talked for a little bit. Alex talked for a little bit. I went home, and I had, a weir- I had weirdly gone to Blade the first time to be inspired by other people's work on how to become better, and I went home knowing that I had already pushed past the majority of my competition huh. as far as quality of things. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these things are like, at that time anyway, are, are amazing or not full of flaws. Cause everyone that I've ever gotten back makes me angry, but yeah. it charged us up. And then the next thing that Alex and I did for the culinary side was we've actually flew to Phil at the home butcher in San Antonio for the sole purpose of the fact that Phil had every one of the, at that time who I considered my competition's knives in stock. And I got to hold every last one of everybody's knives. And I made mental notes of every flaw, of every good, of everything that I was short on or everything that I was already ahead on. I went home and I set my head down to make a better knife than I had seen at Phil's. And that's been the goal ever since. It's just to keep making a better version of the knife that I made when I came home from Phil's and I said, this has improved on all of the things that I found. Now, that is not to say that I am just I'm looking at all these knives and I'm there. Who knows how much I didn't see or how much I just saw that was just my own consistent error, you know. But at the same time, it was enough to give me the encouragement to go home and do something better
0: that's a, that's a very interesting because it's very important to obviously to see what other people are doing because you're by yourself in your shop and you can see pictures and stuff like that but without holding them you don't you don't really know but i'm interested in the fact that because i i actually have a lot of knives from a lot of knife makers and i always look at them and i think like all right he, he does a better job at this than i do or he does a better job than this than i do and i like the concept of of knowing that I'm not the best around. I like the confidence of knowing that I have a lot to learn and I'm looking forward to getting better. I don't necessarily feel like I have to say, um, I'm, I've never once said to, to me, and maybe this has to do with the fact that I don't really have a high opinion of myself anyway, but I never have the opinion of saying, nor am I saying that that's what you're doing, but I'm, I never have the opinion to say, uh, I make the best knives around. I, I
1: always I think, think like, that was the beginning goal, is, but since then, it's just.
0: Have you changed that? Oh,
1: absolutely. Abso- absolutely. We had. What to, would you we say? How change. would you,
0: how did you change?
1: Well, the simple fact that the, I don't consider what I do to, I do custom stuff that I will say is start to finish that I'm proud of and would put in the same class as a lot of the makers that I am still actively aware of, but. I would say that what most of Doghouse Forge does is no longer in that class. I'm now below that class. Um, My semi-production line is by far the most popular. You do a lot more semi-production work. I probably do 350 custom knives a year. I probably do 1,000 to 2,000 semi-production knives. So Hmm. what had to change was the decision to... Those knives are fantastic. You have one. They're beautiful. There's not a thing wrong with them. They're beautiful. They're ABL. They're hardened perfectly. Handles are great. I'm happy, happy, happy. But you can't put that in a class of what somebody has done by hand because it's still semi-production. It's still computer-helped and assisted. I grind everything that I do by scratch, I grind freehand, but I'm still cutting most stuff out on my plasma table or on the water jet with Pete. Like I am a big proponent of using... My tools, right? So, at the time, I was trying to make. Only, we were only making custom knives, so every knife that I made to sell maybe that was back in the day when we would sell them on Instagram, Jeff. Right. Like that's back in the day when we'd be like, "Nice sale, five o'clock on Friday," and everybody in your Instagram saw it because it wasn't limited anymore. It was it was where everybody got every message. And five o'clock on Friday, you'd start posting pictures with numbers on them, and people would comment mine. And it was the first one. They were in an order, and they didn't reshift. It was bam, done, you win, got it. And it shifted because we couldn't keep up, and we had overhead because unlike a lot of folks that were in shops or their houses, Alex and I had this shop, right, and we were trying to figure out because we didn't have places at home to do it. So we had we had to come up with a way to be a business first and then do this art that we had fallen in love with. So. Doghouse Forge and RP Knives kind of joined up in order to push the company into a company with, you know, production, not, this is, that's why it's Doghouse Forge and not Jonathan Porter's custom knives, because those titles are reserved for somebody who's doing specifically custom work. So what we did was we, we pushed it into a market that everybody else, in my opinion, is unavailable to. Um, the lower we're in that you know two to three hundred dollar market, which right. for this for the semi production, the custom is substantially higher. It's it's lower than everybody else because I don't feel like my work is as good as most of the custom makers. So I have nothing to. I can't say that I should expect anything less. I have spent the majority of the last three and a half four years growing a business and doing custom work on the side. I have not been dedicated solely to pattern development or whatever else. You know what I mean? Like,
0: well, it's that, see, that's what interests me about you. And and this is why I hold you in such high regard. You're on my my short list of of guys I look up to because you have taken the idea, you create, you started to make the, the, when the original (laughs) idea that when people first start doing knives, they start to see it as the craft and they, develop the craft, and then you get the buzz of the concept of I can make a knife that people can use and they like it. Then all of a sudden you have to make that transition between am I an artist or am I in business? And then your decisions are based on that. You, know, you can make the decision of saying I'm just gonna forge whatever I want to forge. You could be like a uh, 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 Nick Anger, and you could just say it's gonna. I'm gonna wake up in the morning. I'm, I'm gonna throw the tea leaves down. I'm gonna look at where, what the constellations doing, right. and then the steel I have, and that's what it's gonna be. I love him. Couple I rap. love. He's my. <laughs> no. I love him. I love every. When I talk to him, that's what it is. Ah, I was looking at the constellations, and then the solstice happened, and boom! Now I have. This is where that knife came. I love that. But I love what you do, and that's kind of pushed me in the direction where I want to go in terms of I want to give something to someone that they can use and that I want the price to be at the point where they don't feel like it ha- they have to put white gloves on to take it out and use it. I want them to use it, and I want them to feel good about it. I want to make a product, and I want my art to be the business.
1: I just have a real hard time on the custom side, putting too much of a price tag on something that I might be making for
0: the first time. I I'll 100% agree. I 100% agree. And
1: I'm okay with the price that I have on stuff. It makes me happy. It's not my horseshoeing hourly wage, but I'm also not in the heat. I'm also standing in my in, 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 in my garage at the moment. I'm... Playing with my daughters, who are doing stuff behind me. I'm working on my own stuff. I'm going inside to make coffee. You know, like I don't have the same work uh, difficulties that I'm shoeing horses in the nine thousand degree Florida summer. Right. Fighting off bugs and trying to do geometry in my head so I don't mess up your your show horse. So that I don't know. You're talking about business thing. That's been something that I've really had to had to grapple with after Alex left. Jeff is that. We had a custom knife price point when we decided to build in the semi-production. And when we first released semi-production, it was never released under any sort of like guise that it was custom. It was never tried to be like sheeped over,
0: you know? And just real quick, when you say semi-production, you get the knives water jet cut, you get them laser cut, you get them water jet cut, you get them heat treated, you get them partially ground.
1: Correct, you have your, your primary bevel was put in and right. they're heat treated professionally. And then you know they're, they're obviously water jet. Um, our semi production is just AEBL stainless. I don't particularly like to do cryo, especially not at the volume that we do. So having it done at Peter's is just—it's foolproof. You get a certificate for every dang one that goes in there, and it's—it liability-wise, if you're going to sell knives, guys, you got to—you got to think about moving heat treat someplace that's uh, professionally rated for it. Because if you guys are going to get in trouble, it's going to be for your heat treat. So back to the
0: business. Yeah. So you were saying the business end before I derailed you. You were saying uh, you were taking the custom and the, oh, the right production We had
1: the idea that we could just continue in this market, but just have an easier life. And then we realized very quickly that they're different markets. And now we, right. now we don't belong to the lower market at all. So now what I got to do is reinvent Doghouse Forge to a completely different Instagram audience. So, because at the time, that's all we had was Instagram and the website, which generated through Instagram. (laughs) So it was like, our Facebook was a ghost ship. It just repeats whatever I put on Instagram. And that's where the diversification started to like kind of make sense. And it's also at that time that, we had to pay for all this semi production because it's not cheap. Like you're talking about big minimums at these places. These aren't like, I want to do like 30. These are like, I need to do right. hundreds <laughs> at this. Right. You, you had, that's it. There's no, there's no negotiations. So we started doing classes, started doing everything we could think of to generate capital. Because one thing I'm very proud of is that Alex and I really didn't borrow money. And, we did it all by just working really damn hard and flipping it all right back into it, you know, and we got to a certain point later on where where we're a much bigger company and things are different. But in, in those days, in the beginning, when we were first figuring it out, we were doing it all off of our, it just, it was literally, if we have this knife sale, we can buy this tool. If we buy this tool, it'll speed us up. We can have another knife sale and use that for this. You know, it was always calculated. Everything was reinvested to make the next part possible. And when we hit that wall, though, where it was like, damn, this isn't working the way it's supposed to. But then, we, then it, 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 it's all worked out because we figured out that there is a semi-production market, that under $300 market. And then there's full custom. And they don't care that it takes a while. And they don't care that it's not totally perfect. You're trying to make it just as perfect as that semi-production, but you never will because it's a fucking computer. But I stare at those and I try and do my own work to be just that good every single time. You would, it's, a, it's a never ending strive for that, right? But the people that order custom, they order a different process. I've started because of you and it is so beneficial. I reach out through Instagram for most of our custom orders, at least the ones that I'm aware of through their Instagram. And I send them photos. Of their knives, like throughout the process, and it's it's totally like you said, man. It is the it, it makes they're so happy to get to see this like knife laying on its side that I'm like, well, I have to do this next, and I'm not yeah. excited about it, but not to them, but
0: to get well, that started out as I don't want you to think I took your money, and I'm you know I gonna hear from you. I wanted right. to. This was the preemptive. Don't call me. I'll call you. I mean, it was like where you want to talk about like a Larry David situation. It was. I don't want the calls in the middle of the night. Where's my knife. And it was like, right. if I can preempt those calls with an email showing you what's going on, I don't have to deal with anybody ever again. It's fantastic. I just get happy notes. Boy. Well,
1: the diversified approach really started to work and it started to work in a way that I don't think I know for me, I'd re I'd, I'd, I designed and run a horseshoeing business, but my business is cyclical. it, It's every five weeks, you don't screw up, you're nice, you do a good job, and you're probably going to have the same horses every five weeks. It's very easy to predict your life. Right. With the knife making, it was brand new, it was retail, it was seasons, and still to this day, I'm still very, very, I'm more comfortable now. But, I mean, I can remember my first October with real overhead as a company when, like, we just didn't sell any damn knives. Because it's October and nobody buys anything. But guess what? You started the company in April and it's booming with tax money. So my first summer where it slows down in the summer and you're like, oh, this is a retail market. This is not custom. This is only going to be busy at tax season and around Christmas time. So you start to plan. And you start to realize you need customs. You can't just walk away from it. How many of us would love to never do another custom order? That's me. I'm raising my hand right now. I'd love to just make whatever I want. I'd love to do a couple rounds of the I Ching and <laughs> make my Nick anger knife that day, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, good call, nice pull with the I Ching. I Ching. Nice I Ching. pull with that one. With only you and I got. Only you and I got that it's, one. I don't think anybody else is gonna get that. Somebody, it's will, like a pick, Somebody, it's like it. Chinese old school fortune telling pick up sticks. Yeah, it's yeah, fantastic. It's, it's, That's it. a good pull. That's a tough pull, but it's a good pull.
1: <laughs> but anyway. I learned that you need to stack things. I learned that as a business, you have to be fluid because it's not horseshoeing. It's not predictable. So as I'm trying to be predictable and I'm trying to build patterns, it's not patterning the way I want it to. And you had to, for me, all of my work that I'd done was patterning on a very isolated, very small level. When you scale back and you look at your company and it only happens after you've been in business. And I mean, there's, People right now they're laughing at me because of what I'm talking about, but and th- how much I still don't know. But you get through a few cycles and you can kind of see the pattern. But the first few cycles you're just running blind, and it's so hard in the retail side of it because you're trying to make knives and you're putting them on the website. And you know that feeling when you get an upload or you get a batch done and you're like, these are ready to be sold. And then it's just it's August and guess what? There's nobody buying those knives right now. Your custom, your custom orders are busy. It's Florida. You can't have classes because it's 9,000 degrees. So you learn. All right. Schedule classes in the spring, and the fall. That generates the extra income you need to make it till Black Friday or November's kickoff for shopping. When you can sell the hell out of production and you can make 80% of your year in a month and a half. And then. You got custom orders that you systematically cash in whenever you need to pay bills throughout the year and you just keep juggling. And all of a sudden it stopped being juggling and it just got to be the the cycle. And you realize that this is the natural cycle.
0: I'm fascinated by the fact, I always assumed when I was thinking about this comp talk, I was going to think there, there has to be these massive connections between the horseshoeing business and the, Knife making business, and now I'm realizing, you had the horseshoeing business, you got your ranches that you go to, you have your horses you go to on a very systematic situation every five weeks or whatever, you know you're going back, and you're just taking this idea, this business concept, and this this whatever speculation or or your you know you know what's going to happen every six weeks, and you try to push that into the knife business, and it's like whoa these this isn't like that at all that it didn't work because your horseshoe business is all repeat business on a very very scheduled timetable but a knife making business that you might you might get repeat business once every couple years Uh, if you're lucky or sometimes you'll get the one guy we got like three guys who buy you know twice a year you know, but it, it's it's totally a completely different business concept.
1: I'm so removed from my customers on the production side that, like, I don't see them. They're a number. I mean, they're, yeah. they're literally a number. They, they, I go to the, I've shown you, I was bragging to you one day when you were having to fill out forms going to the post office with a box of donuts and I hit click and like my printer printed out yeah. like two years worth of labels <laughs> and yeah
0: it... no there's they're unknown they're unknown names was, yeah. i get people who who seem especially after my emails they seem to think we know we know each other hey it's me whatchamacallit i'm like hey what's going on he's like you sold me the knife a couple of weeks ago i'm like oh i hope you like it there's no but you it's a completely different relationship between the two companies and the fact that you're trying to make this connection between the two of them it must be very hard
1: it's it's not it's not possible. And this isn't like the shameless plug of my wife. My wife is the other half of Doghouse forge. And just like Tony for you, there's not a chance I could operate at this capacity without her. There's Your not enough time in the incredible damn day
0: person. She is a wonderful person. Oh my
1: gosh. PS. She does. I don't really deal with customers unless I have to. I like to, whenever it's just a design stuff or something like that. And we, knock on wood and thank the lord don't have a lot of angry people i think you might be able to after all of these years i think she can still count on just her two hands how many people have been upset and most of the time there was nothing you were going to do to make them happy they were mad long before you ever got involved in their life and that's where emily she's just so good (laughs) Cause I would lose it. Oh man, the customer is not always right. Most of the time, they're really damn wrong, and I don't want to tell you that.
0: No, it's true. No, you are right. I there there. Well, but I mean, you also had that that restaurant background of there. You know, you already had that customer service background built in. I mean, when you're a cook, you're already in the sense of like providing. It's not providing a service, but you're nurturing people. So you already have that in you to make something delicious that they're happy with. And you have that in you to satisfy your customers, It's you know, whether you're uh, conscious or not. The
1: restaurant helps, Jeff. But the biggest thing, Emily ran visual merchandising for a woman's clothing company, a big one. And she was and she was also a, an assistant manager at one of, the, at several of her – I don't know. She's been in retail throughout all of her college life and all of the – she understands the psychology of it like you wouldn't believe and it's so important and it's been so it's been applied to what we do now to the point that I don't even ask like she operates on her own and i have a spreadsheet that prints off with everything that i'm supposed to build if it's a complicated handle, they'll, it goes in a folder that's in the website. Not, in, I'm sorry, that's in the email. So all you have to do is look up the order number, and there's the handle layout you're supposed to replicate, or here's the materials and the space. Like I just literally am totally removed from it. That's one reason I don't like customs as much anymore. I think I, I, I it's crazy to say that, but it's because I have no
0: connection. It. This is the re- This is the difference between. I think that a lot of makers, and it doesn't have to be knife makers, this isn't just a this isn't a knife making podcast, that's knife talk. But the, the concept that makers, people who figure out how to do something and then they want to do it more, and then people want to buy it, and then people want to they, they think, hey, maybe I can quit my job and do this full time, they have to make the connection that just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean you're good at everything. And the problem is, is not that. The problem is, is you have to accept the fact that that's okay. You have to say to yourself, I'm not garbage just because I don't know business. I don't know business, but I do know someone who can. My wife knows how to do business or my, I'm gonna have a business partner. I think that there's this problem with the, the ego of the maker that just because you're making this means you know how to make everything. And you, you have to give yourself a little bit of acceptance and the smarter person says here are my weaknesses instead of me trying to fight through my weaknesses how can i stop and readjust and say okay i'm not good at this but this guy is let's bring him on to 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 fix my problems or my wife is good at this let her she's this is her move let's her have her do this and then we're all successful because of that a decision that you've made
1: absolutely it's
0: I don't think a lot of people can do that. I
1: started losing horseshoeing clients because, um, well, that's that's exaggerated. I lost one horseshoeing client, which for me is like losing all of my horseshoe clients.
0: That's a lot of cl- – it's not one knife. That's not, No, and
1: like... it wasn't it – was. it was a decent barn. It was really nice horses at a time when I was just getting started shoeing really nice horses. So for me, it was more of a ego – I am officially a farrier at this barn with these kinds of horses. This is, I've made it. I've made it to where I am now. I, this, is, this is the level I want to be at, you know? And I worked there for like two years, and Doghouse Four started getting real busy. And I started, I was, you know, just like you, I'm doing emails on my phone. So I'm shooing, and my phone's blooping, and I'm, in the very beginning... And I don't think it's just me. I imagine it's everybody. I know with farriers it is, but here's a couple examples. In the beginning, if you get an email, I don't think you can respond to it fast enough because you're like, oh, God, here it is. Finally, got, it, got something to do. You know, I don't want to lose this. Oh, I don't want to lose this sale. And then you're just all back and forth because those first emails you didn't know how to refine things you didn't you didn't have any efficiency with your process and you just took hours of your life away from you but for me I was obsessed with making sure those people were taken care of because I wanted their knife business because I knew just like shoeing horses in the beginning I had to start if I could start I could figure out how to build and it was like Oh, uh, I just started I was I was not getting my horses done. I'd show up to do like five, and I'd get three and a half done or two and a half done. It's because I was on my phone all day, right. and this guy saw it, and he was like, "I pay you to shoe my horses, man. I don't pay you to be on your phone all day. I know you're busy, but I need a full time horseshoer." And at that point, I think I I had to go home and tell Emily I lost that account. Um, which sucked.
0: It was, that's got to be a, t- a tough. The money to
1: part sucked, but. At that point, I was doing way more horses than I needed to be doing. So it, that wasn't really even – I think there was probably some cocky, well, I don't need this money anyway in my head. You know, right. I'm, I'm very
0: narcissistic. That's a tough thing to hear. Uh, that's a yeah, tough thing yeah.
1: to hear. I'm very narcissistic when it comes to those types of criticisms. When I know right. I'm wrong and you have every reason to be upset with me, oh, man, that's when I'm the worst, the worst narcissist at you. <laughs> that's when I'm the, the – yeah. When I'm 100% aware of the fact that I screwed up, that's – that's not a good time for me. And I had to go home and tell her, Oh, I messed up. And she just said, why didn't you ask for help? And I'm just like, what do you mean? And then from that day forward, she's done the emails and it took a little while because I'm very, very particular. The ADD makes it that way. I I don't mean to be, but I am, uh, you know me with efficiency and I I have to be efficient. And right. in the beginning, we had a lot of hiccups, but now we are just as efficient together. We barely talk about Doghouse Forge. She does her stuff. I do mine. She'll come out to the wood rack. Now that it's home, it's really great. Um, she'll come out to the wood rack, pull the materials she needs, throw them into the custom bin, and walk back inside. She didn't even ask me. You know, sometimes she'll be like, uh, I need this tone, and I'll pull her something out. She'll be like, Yeah, that'll work. You know, and it's just from where it started to where it is now.
0: Now, that's very rare because not a lot of people, except for your wife, are, are going to say, can I help you? Most people are not going to help other makers. You have to, and almost, she did you an inc- extraordinary service by saying that you, it could have taken you years to get to this point if she didn't say, why can't I help you? I would have
1: failed, Jeff. I would have failed at both yeah. of them. Yeah. I was, I, I was literally at the point of imploding my horseshoeing business.
0: Um, I think about all the makers out there who are struggling because they refuse help or they don't know that they need help or that they just don't get that opportunity to have help and they don't take it.
1: Yeah. And paid help is so hard. Um, yeah. I've I've had at one point with Doghouse Forge, we had, I mean, they're other knife maker contractors, I guess, but we had one, two, three. We had like three guys coming in weekly doing full Full gamuts of knives, and then four guys with myself, um, which you got four guys that are cranking out like sixty to hundred knives a week, like all of a sudden your your stock gets built up real quick. Right. <laughs> like Christmas, a couple of those years we made uh you've there's Instagram pictures if you want to go digging. There's one of them that's just a rack that has like a thousand something knives on it. You know, and it, that was a very different time. Because you're talking about help, but don't know you need it. And what I'm trying to connect here is that that's another moment where I needed help, but I didn't know I needed it. And I don't know that I since now that I have been to that plateau, and business for me has always been plateaus. You get to a plateau, and you're at the next step, and you have to figure out how to get to the next one. And then we pushed Doghouse Forge up a few scales, and we were at the point where we needed millions of dollars full like real investors and they needed to take this to like mass marketing and stuff. That's how that's where we were at. I know that now. At the time I was still trying to do it myself.
0: But knowing that you need it and and also knowing that you it's also it's not knowing that you need it necessarily it's it's not wanting to know you need it. Like a lot of people are just going to say I can do it myself.
1: Oh that was that you was that, that's me. I'm a 100%. That's the narcissistic side again. It's the it's that narcissistic well, side is driven by the fact that for a lot of my younger life I was alone. I was doing things on my own. Even as a high school student, I was at a performing arts high school in a different town. I worked several nights a week. I worked all weekend.
0: I didn't have anybody else, Jeff. It was me. Right. So I'm and you needed to make sure that, that when you talk about the narcissism, you're you're wondering am I good enough? Can I do this without, can I do this myself? Right. I can, I have worth. You're, you're, you're trying to you manifest your own worth by whatever. And then it
1: complicates it because you get the right. pride
0: that likes to jump in when you finally break down and say,
1: I think I need to ask somebody what to do. And then you've got the pride. That's like, nah, let me push it a little further. See if I can come that's up hard. with it. You know, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. It's it's real hard. to
0: make that. It, I think that that's probably one of the main problems that makers have when they, I hear a lot of, you know I used to hear a lot of like, you can't, don't be a knife maker because the business is bad. I don't think that the business is bad. I think that the people who say that are the ones who are just like, I don't, I can't, if I can't do it, that means you can't do it. And I think that there's a lot of like, (laughs) all right, are we gonna talk about this being a craft or are we gonna talk about being this business? And I'm a craftsman, but I wanna be in a business. So let's get a business person involved. You know, right. there's a lot, the, 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 ego is so, fra- the ego is so fragile and the ego is really, it's you're a lot of people are unable to ask for help, but you were given this like golden, the, the clouds were opened up and this golden ray of, of light came down and it was your wife and said, why don't I give you a hand? And you were like, all right, fine. I, and then now all systems go. I can't
1: tell you how many times in those, in those crunch years where we were really putting out production, she saved our ass. I bet. Just like I'm not surprised. Just like I'd be like, "Oh my gosh, Emily, we got such and such bill coming up and I don't know why, but we're behind on blah blah blah, so we can't we can't call that second half of the bill in yet." So we're going to have to come up with some sort of something and she'd say, "All right, start posting. Get on Instagram, post your good shit. Send tag my email address. I'll do the rest." And I'll do the rest and sure enough, all of a sudden, here's a week you're trying to figure out what to do and Emily's pulling three, four, five thousand dollars in custom orders. And then she'll come yeah. at me and she loves it. Oh, she loves it. She'll come at me and just be like, Here you go. And just Oh my goodness. It's it's a blessing.
0: Tony when Tony gets such a rush when he sells a pile of knives, <laughs> he gets such a rush. It's great. Yeah, I love it. I'm so happy. I always, I congratulate him and I and I say, you did it. You did it. It's like, it is, it is pretty, pretty amazing when you have that kind of partnership. I just don't have the now, sales.
1: I have too much self-doubt. Also tied to right. the narcissism, but it's. I have too much self-doubt. I need, I need validation of myself, let alone me telling you that something's good enough. Are you kidding me? So Now, go ahead.
0: Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to kind of squeeze back into a direction. Okay. In terms of the validation and in terms of when you told me, you said when I lost a, a horse uh, account, I thought you were going to tell me how you were on. The first time I ever saw you, was on a YouTube clip of you on Forge and Fire. Oh yeah. You were on the first season of Forge and Fire. Well, I was. And yeah. I don't know what you could say or what you can't say. I don't really want to obviously I don't want to I don't want you to say what you don't want it what you shouldn't say. But I know that you were on the first season of Forge and Fire and that was a huge reckoning for you in regards to your business. Right. And you did lose business because being well, on Forge that and
1: Fire Barn that I told you I got fired from um If you watch the episode, when I'm at home in the final round, I burn my practice axe that I'm trying to figure out. I have this billet of Damascus, but I was waiting to forge it until I had made this other axe first. Because I had to figure out the steps, right? So if you watch the show, you'll see like right I'm sitting at my Coke. And this is season one. Episode three. Me and episode
0: three, Ryu and, and
1: I made Vi- Viking battle Ryu. axes, And Phil Evans is in it too. He's another great guy. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I love Phil Evans. He's, one of, he's Papa Bear. But anyway, um, I burned my axe in half in the Coke fire right, right on TV. And right off TV is me reading the text message from that account telling me that they no longer need my services. They're very disappointed in me. They had high hopes in me. They really were hoping that my dedication would push them further as competitors, and they don't understand what why they lost importance in me. And wow. I read that, and I turned around, and my axe was burned in half because it it dropped me. I was.
0: Oh my god! So, what a what a what a physical manifestation of incredible disappointment.
1: Yeah, and then I turned around, and the is burned in half, and I'm just like,
0: "That's the, that's it." I mean, that's the physical manifestation. You have this terrible when, you, when somebody's disappointed in you, and they send you a message about your disappointment. You feel like shit, and then all of a sudden, you have. The, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like out of a, it's like out of a play. You have, you have this this disappointment because you've been been not paying attention to what you're doing, and then all of a sudden, this important thing that you weren't paying attention to that falls apart on you. It was
1: heavy. It was heavy. That's it was terrible. an eye-opener. I have to kind of find bottoms before I get my eyes yeah. opened. That's just, I think that's a lot of people's nature. Um, Ugh, it's my I nature. I have to find a – I'm stubborn. I, don't, I, I like to think that my way is going to work. And as I've gotten older, that has subsided some, but it is hmm. still very prominent.
0: It's, it's not a great trait. So back to Forge and Fire just for a little bit sure. because I talked to two I talked to Ben Snore about his experience on Forge and Fire. PS, I don't think you can have a better outcome no. by losing Forge and Fire well, than what Ben Snore did. Ben Snore
1: proved my point, which is that Forge and Fire will be great if you do not make knives.
0: <laughs> that is and so 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 what I had said on that on that episode was I wonder what it's like if you're the first person off off the show. What do you do? You're sitting in your hotel. And this is, this is something I've been wanting to bring up, but it seems appropriate that it's, it's, it's you because with the Benster. So the, what I was saying, I can't, what do you do? You're in, you're in Connecticut. What do you do? I'm not in Connecticut.
1: Season one is in downtown Williamsburg.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, I thought it was in Long Island city. No.
1: Okay. Williamsburg. Williamsburg. Underneath some road is where my hotel was. There's some highway that I was like half underneath. (laughs)
0: Was that your first time to New no, York? No, I've been a couple times.
1: I don't like New York. When I was 18, six, 7, no, I'm sorry, I was in college. And when I was 23, 24, I went there for the first time. As I approached the city, I'm having the, the same amazement that I think everyone would have. I'm having the most fun in the city. I'm just amazed at all of the life. We went up on my friend's roof, and I had a panic attack. I... I did a, too much. I did 360 degrees and I could not see the end of houses, like of rooftops. Not like I can see something else. It was 360 degrees and I couldn't find the end of the housetops. And I was like, I was like two months out it's of the ranch. And I was
0: like, nah, 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 I literally the next day I got in the truck and left. Like we're out. So when I was talking <laughs> to Ben, we were talking about how, what do you do if you're the first guy getting kicked off and you're stuck in Connecticut? You're obviously not going to go into the city because maybe this isn't your first time. Right. And that week, I got a call. I got a message from Nicholas Nichols. What a guy, great guy. Okay. He said, don't say anything. I was on forging fire. It's coming out in a week or two. I was the first person kicked off. And I want to tell you what I did. He did exactly what i said nobody would wow. do wow so he got kicked off he could fly, fly him into connecticut he's on the thing bub, bub, <laughs> bub, gets off so he's he's like well now what am i gonna do he's i'm gonna take the train and go into new york and he went into new york he went to rockefeller center he went to the oyster bar he went to central park he ate a hot dog here he it did Everything I said nobody would do. It's just Ferris I Bueller, just a- New
1: York. That's great.
0: He did Ferris Bueller, New York. And I want to apologize because I made the assumption that no one was going to do it. And Nicholas Nichols did exactly what you should do if you're the first person kicked off Forge and Fire. Don't sit in your hotel room. Take the train and go into New York. I salute you, and I have been wanting to talk about this. I've been waiting for your episode to come on because I wanted to say I made the mistake. I wow. made the mistake of counting out. But the hilarious thing was, it just happened after I said, "Ah, eh, you're going to sit in your hotel room and you're just going to watch, you know, you know, TV <laughs> while you're sucking in in Connecticut."
1: I was terrified so, of that, to
0: be honest with you. I did not want to be s- first. That was all I wanted. You that and that leads me to a quote that you said. Okay. About. What happens when you're competing? Oh, I know this. You just quote. <laughs> go ahead. What you said? You said on another podcast. You what did you say? You don't have to
1: outrun the bear. You just have to be faster than the slowest
0: guy in the group. There you go. So that's. <laughs> I love that. When you <laughs> said that, I was just like, yeah. So your so your your experience on Forged in Fire, you come on, you 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 know, and then you 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 compete, and then you have this. Did you have a good experience when you were in New York during this? I was different than your panic attack.
1: I was so busy that I, um, because I mean, I'm sure people realize at this point that all those interviews have to happen at some time and they stop and start and stop and start and stop and start, stop and start. And you're hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And it's, I was busy and in makeup or in their control all day. Um, I was one of the finalists, so I obviously the guys who got sent home would be immediately asked to leave. They would do their final interview, and then we would see them. If we got home in time, we would see them at the hotel, usually in the lobby. But uh, I didn't get to do very much. I was in and out of that minivan. Dinner was literally them stopping at what I believe you call a bodega. Um, (laughs) I would go in and buy some sort of cold-cut sandwich out of the – the already packaged like deal and i would buy my coffee drink for the next morning uh, cuz the hotel coffee was horrible and yeah it was not like a it was, the last day there we had like a half an hour to kill or no i'm sorry we had a couple hours to kill before the the van was supposed to take us to the different airports and we went to this really cool diner that was really fun but that was the only uh, actual new york that i got to as see.
0: contestants all the contestants were together
1: yeah yeah the four of us did The four of us did. We had a good time. I really enjoyed it. I met Phil Evans there. I met Ryu there. Ryu became like an international superstar in in the Philippines because of his performance. Is that right? He did great. It was it was a great job. I remember again, cocky. When I finished at the house or at the shop, I was um I had made a Damascus battle axe. I had done these like hand sewn and stitched leather wraps. I had like I had it was gonna. It was gonna work. It wasn't gonna break. I was confident. And I walked around the corner to with Ryu. You know, we're standing in the back, and Ryu's like, "Man, mine's a real, real bummer, man. I don't think you're gonna like it." And I'm like, "Oh man, I, mine's really good." And I'm like, "All right, maybe this is a." <laughs> I didn't say that to it, but I'm thinking, you know, like, oh, "Shit, mine's really good." So maybe I got a chance. And I got for a moment, I got, I got hope. I had this like moment of like, "You're gonna fucking pull this off. You're gonna win this show." Holy crap. And I walk around the corner and there's reuse like the executioner from every movie that's ever been made's axes is like, it's huge. It's massive. And it's just like, I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> this is not, this isn't going to be as easy as I thought that that is a beast of an axe. And sure enough, it was, it was not as fair as it looks on TV. They did. They did reshoot some stuff that bummed me out and that's uh, there's been a lot of folks who have had that same experience but it's tv so what are you gonna do
0: Um, yeah i think that's a tough one i think those tv shows are tough and we've talked about this and you know you know obviously you don't have to go into it very much but they do you do it's hard to do a true competition and make it look good
1: i think that's what the biggest difference was that and i've talked to ben snur about this is that at the time that I did Forge and Fire, I was competing in horseshoeing competitions, and I was competing pretty regularly, um, practicing nonstop. And horseshoeing contests are they are usually a very specific type of horseshoe, fully forged from bar stock, p- nail holes, punched, creased, fuller, you name it, it. It could be a million different modifications to it, or sizes, or thicknesses, or tapers, or wedges, or whatever. It could be a million things. And... You're, you're given just enough time to get it done. And then on top of that, they usually throw something else in that you have to do that you have to juggle and you're not ready for. So you're real good at taking what, what my mentor calls taking your lumps. And that's what the hardest thing to do. And I guess now that I'm a little older, maybe this is the point of the way the horseshoeing contests are built. We strive for perfection as horseshoers, because in our mind, it's not good enough if it's not perfect the horse, it could always be better, right? The horse could always be better. Yeah. And you practice and you make these, what we call table shoes and they're symmetrically balanced. They're perfect. They're like the one you've got. That's like, they're just crisp and they're forged and they're everything about the craft is in them and it's real and it's traditional and they're perfect. But when you get to that contest and they throw that other thing in, you don't have enough time to make it perfect anymore. Right. So you have to learn to take your lumps. And it's the hardest thing to learn because you want validation from your peers. You've made these shoes in practice at your house or at your shop or at your mentor shop like me. And you're ready to show people that you're worth it. And you know what it takes to do this. And this is the thing that gives you validation in wanting validation, if that's such a thing, is what you're doing is actually really hard. It's not uh, – you, you are proud of what you've accomplished because of how complex it's been to get there. And that's the beauty of what I call the glory. Yeah. I, I told you at the clinic, like, don't steal their glory. You know, like – Yeah, right. Let them get to almost messed up before you jump in because they, they got to have those moments where they catch it, and that's the glory. That's the moment where, like, the, the aha moments, you know. And on Forge and Fire, I had to take my lumps, so it was not a hard competition.
0: For me. I just don't think. I just don't think any of these competitions, and you might think differently, where your validation is based on time constraints and this and that and the other thing and and like, I just don't necessarily think that that's good for the mind. Where you're up against somebody else and your worth is based on how you do in a competition, I just don't think that's good for the human. I brain. don't know that that's maybe what they're somebody, intended for. Maybe though. some people are. That's
1: my brain. They're not, of course, you know, that's my no, they're, take. They're on. not.
0: But a lot of people who do these competitions they do think that it's that it's for that's exactly what it is I'm stacking myself up to someone else and I need to know that i'm better because my self worth is 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 part of that cool. and i just i'm not sure that it's good for most people i don't people. think
1: it is it's not you should value absolutely that's self est- self- esteem is not a high point for me so it's it's again it's part of the narcissistic side of me it's yeah it's uh, uh it's all rooted in there but the, the thing with me is that, like, when I started my certification, my national – the American Farrier Certification Program, I wanted my, my certification because it meant that I belonged. It meant that I had earned right. my spot at this dinner table while we all sit around and talk. And that's, like, right. the, the brotherhood, the apprentice-mentor situation. Like, I think that's ingrained in that whole process of tradesmanship is we're going to let you learn this.
0: There's a difference, though, between, you know, having it, you know, going to a school or learning something and then getting accreditation as opposed to, all right, you guys are going to do this in three, three hours and whoever wins, whoever's is the best wins and now we're going to make it hard on you. I don't, that doesn't, you know. Putting hurdles in front of someone doesn't show the value. It shows you got inner grit and you maybe have a little bit something extra, but it isn't. It doesn't help you with your self-esteem.
1: I, that might be that. a real good reason why they have such a hard time keeping that alive.
0: You know, it's so judged. Well, the shoe mean forge and fire. No,
1: the the horseshoeing contest. Oh, they're yeah, so yeah, judged.
0: Yeah. I think the both. I think that they're both. I think that forge right, and, great, and but fire.
1: But I that's never that's took just... as a moment where I was going to make a good knife. Like I never in my mind went in there thinking, I was, right. and that was where taking your lumps. And I'm like the whole time I'm telling, nope, that's a lump. Excuse me, right. that's that's something you got to take. That's something you gotta.
0: The only time I've ever judged anything really, and it's funny, is when I the times I've watched Forge and Fire on YouTube, I'm always judging the welded stands that they make to hold the <laughs> knives up. I'm like. That thing looks terrible. They didn't even have a grinder. You couldn't just like put a put a plug. You drill a hole, put the and the plug weld underneath, so you don't see all that awful weld. I was just like, God, those are those are bad. Why why did they fix those? You have to remember,
1: I'm season one.
0: Oh, I understand. We went, I'm talking about. I think. No, no, no. One.
1: I'm just saying. On our, our, our I went in blind. Marekko went in blind. Jamie, Matt, they all went. Yeah. Every all of us. Pete, Peter, we all went in blind. We all had no idea what was going to happen. So like I've told Ben, I went into thinking forged in fire knife making show. I practiced extensively forging out blades all the way to completion, because in my head, it was going to be a farrier contest. And when they say forged, that means there's no power, right? That means files and hammers and that's it. And so I went in there ready to forge. And when they were like, you can use whatever you want, just, it was, it became a very different thing for me immediately. It was not what I prepared for.
0: in regards to getting back to getting back and we're going to slowly wrap this thing up but one of the things i've wanted to mention and this is based on now now what we're dealing with now in terms of when we were talking about calculated risks taking gambles you did something that a lot of people don't know okay and in back in i guess it must have been march when March was when we. I think the country really started. You know, February people really were talking about. Yeah, it was. I think it was uh, coronavirus. I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it was March for sure.
0: March, you and I were talking. You know, you and I talk once a week at least, and we text all the time. You made. I think this must have been March. You after we talked, and I was, you know, I had a panic attack about you know my wife Hillary and going up, you know, all of what's going on in New York. You made a calculated risk that was probably one of the slickest moves to the point where I'm getting goosebumps thinking <laughs> about it. You had a beautiful shop. You had this beautiful shop in Lakeland. I've been there twice. Ben was the last class that came through it. A beautiful shop. There was a front and there was a machine, a grinding room, and then there was a huge shop that fit your, your all your other grinders and your t- presses and your forges and the anvils and you had t- double, you know, triple, double. T- 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 Doors, <laughs> and you made based on what was going on in the world, you made the calculated risk in March. I'm gonna move back home, and try to save some money because I think things are gonna go bad.
1: I did. I, I did. And
0: when you and it, because it's a huge shop and you got a giant overhead. Yeah. But you were making it work, and based on what was going on in the world, no one is going at the time. Nothing was going on in Florida yet, March. You said i'm going to break my lease and move back and move the shop back home and you probably made one of the smartest moves of all time it was uh it was
1: tough and i I did break my lease, but I a hundred percent reached out to my landlord and we he came and we talked about it, and he agreed it was the right thing to do so i I want to be I'm not like...
0: No, you know, I, when I say... Yeah. Per, I'm not saying you, like, walked no, out no, no. on the lease. I mean, you, you did it the right way, but...
1: And he's been a huge just... part of that decision. My, my landlord is one of the... Lar- if not the largest commercial property holder in Polk County where I live. And he's his, from... A, his father built the company. He... Very established
0: businessman. Way above my pay grade. That was an incredibly tough decision to make. It,
1: it was, but... I was excited to make it because I knew that in making it, I was going to be increasing the amount of time I was going to get to spend with my family. But right. the reason that it was made, I, I don't predict or pretend to have predicted where all of this has led. I, I knew I had to cancel the remaining spring and the early summer clinics because of the fact that they were talking about shutting stuff down. And I knew that as, number one,
0: it, Ben Ben got in by the skin, skin of his He flew penis.
1: home literally
0: like two days before they were like, "Damn, we're done." And it was like people were wearing masks when you took me to the
1: airport. Yeah, it was intense. So, I between the two of yous clinic, I had noticed it escalating, and I was like, "Man, this is going to get tough to get people here." And I don't think a lot of people realize that the doghouse forge classes were probably at least what fifty percent folks that come from other places. Yeah. Um, and it's always that way. So I had fall clinics set up. I had like four of them. And you have to realize that I just, I talked about it earlier. You got to have all three pieces of the puzzle if you're going to run the big shop, because you got to be able to cover one way or the other. And I'm thinking to myself, diversify wise, if the economy is not as good as it was, I'm going to lose my lower production line because that's what's going to go first. Your custom folks, a lot of them have money no matter what's going on. It's probably going to be that it might slow down, but I think your custom line, if you're true enough with it, is never going to go away. So I'm looking at diminished customs and education. I'm having to responsibly check out. And this is pre-stimulus and everything else, but I had to, I had to, I had to consciously check off semi-production line, Chef's Essentials, as viable source of income, which was hard because that's where I've got my most infrastructure. And then I had to sit there and say, all right, we're canceling this spring. I got to refund these people. That's not fun. So I refund everybody. Now you're sitting here going, I don't want to do that again. Right. I got to think about if there's at that point, they were saying that by early summer, June, everybody would be wrapped back up, which I knew wasn't going to happen because no offense, America, America, We are so fucking selfish that I knew there wasn't a chance in hell that, as a country, we were going to be able to figure out what to do with ourselves. Especially when it immediately began to be apparent that we were so divided as to whether or not there was actually something going on. Myself included, downplayed it for the first three weeks, two weeks, whatever. My wife and I had arguments about it. I said there's just no damn – I was 100% on the other side of the ballpark. But when I made the decision that – The fall, whether it was closed or not, it was going to be very difficult to get imported people to the class. I realized that I had now handicapped myself of two of my three pillars. I could not afford to run this on just one pillar. There's too much risk involved. I have a viable option. I have a wonderful house. I have an oversized garage. I have the whole shop in there. And I have... A very good friend that's five minutes from the house that has all of my forging equipment at his house. He's getting the way better deal, if you ask him, because he just gets to go out and forge whatever he wants. But I've gone there and made Damascus. I've gone there and made bases for magnet racks. I've gone there and made special horseshoes. Like, it's it's not ideal, but until we figure out what everything's going on, then this is where I'm happy to be because it's safe. And I don't want to lose what I work so damn hard for over the pride of having a building that I want to keep open just so that I can work in this air conditioned part of the building that as that was all I worked in
0: dude it was and you and I talked a lot and I, I you were you wanted reports on Hillary every week yeah. and what was going on and we were having real it was almost like uh it was almost like a a, a daily you know uh board meeting right. in regards to what was going on and when you made that decision I thought my god That is that. It takes a lot of courage to make a decision like that because it's like the it was the perfect shop, and I just that just solidifies to me that when you make calculated risks and decisions, it's not just based on your gut. It's based on incredible thought, uh, experience, and science. Really, I mean, it all comes down to science. And with that said, I cannot thank you enough for coming on here. We've gone two hours. I could do, we could do two more hours just because I'm going to have you back on. I know <laughs> that I'm going to have you on with Ben. I'm, that's oh, the plan. Oh, I didn't tell you any the cowboy
1: stories, ever one.
0: No, 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 no. We're going to do cowboy talk. when Ben's, Next time you're on, you're going to be on with Ben's story. We're going to do cowboy talk. I'm going to keep my mouth shut, and, I'm gonna, and we're going to do cowboy talk but you are one of my good friends. I, I, I look up to you in regards to your business acumen, but also you're smart, you're smart, you're smart guy and you're smart guy. Thank you, and I always feel Thank like you if you're the, if, it's better to be the dumb guy in the room than the smart guy in the room. So I'm the dumb guy in the room and I'm happy to be the dumb guy. I'd like to look at you and Jared Thatcher and and Quentin Middleton and Tomer Botner and I look at you guys as these people to look up to in regards to how to do this and comp successful in terms of being a maker, and I can't thank you enough.
1: You're most welcome, and I'll leave you with this. If you think you're the dumb guy, which you're not, there was a thing written on one of the outhouse walls at the ranch, okay. and it said, there is no whole substitute for wisdom, but silence works
0: pretty damn well. Damn. I'm not good at that part though. (laughs) (laughs) I can't control myself. Now that we're getting like ads on this podcast, (laughs) I gotta like, all of a sudden now I'm just be like, I better do more of these and do a good job because I got like Starbucks and beer ads. I gotta, I gotta keep that shit up. So, I can't. Once again, thank you enough. Everybody, go follow you. I know that you're following Doghouse Forge and be and support Jonathan Porter. He's a good dude. He makes great stuff. He's got a wonderful family. We didn't talk about Millie, who's sitting there with you. One of the greatest dogs of all time. She is in the closet with me now. I'm telling you, one of the greatest people, and the greatest dogs, and the greatest companies, and the wonderful family. You are my friend, and I can't thank you enough, guys. Next time, we're gonna have next week. We're gonna have Cliff Dufton on CJ Dufton on Instagram. And if you want to reach out, if you want to uh, get involved with the show, go on Instagram, follow the Full Blast Podcast on the Makery Network. Thank you, Craig Lockwood, for for, uh, uh, doing this. Thank you very much, It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. We're going to figure this all out. So go follow us and go on iTunes. Give us a five-star review. Subscribe. uh, Leave a nice message. A nice message. Thank you very much. And then we're going to get you squared away. So, guys, thanks once again, JP. You're the best, best. and thank you once again, and we're going to do this another time, and I'll see you all later. Talk
1: to everybody later. Bye-bye.
0: All right, there you go. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.